Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the Scripture to 1 John. We have made it to 1 John chapter 4, where we will look at the first four verses, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the first six verses together this morning. Starting with a verse, really a couple of verses that strike our ears oddly, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm thankful for slides this morning because the main point no one would be able to keep in their head if it wasn't up there. The main point of this passage is that the apostolic testimony concerning Jesus, which is provided by John, what they've heard from the beginning, interpreted by the Spirit-indwelt church, is the final authority for determining spiritual truth. The apostolic testimony concerning Jesus, interpreted by the Spirit-indwelt church, is the final authority for determining spiritual truth. And so right here in time for Halloween... John gives us a strange-sounding passage about spirits and discerning them. And of course, as you might imagine, it has nothing to do with Halloween. I channeled all of my self-control in my sermon preparation to not make any Halloween jokes that would have no doubt been hilarious. But I didn't make them uh, because I think it would be a distraction for people. But we're, John tells us that we are to test the spirits. We're to test the spirits. Why is that? Why is that? Well, it's because we aren't to believe every spirit. We're to test them to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, this hits our ears oddly. It kind of conjures up images of seances um, or contending with demons or Ouija boards. Hey, this is the text that says I need to go do battle with the demons and verbally spar with spirits, but that is not the case at all, to be very clear, to be very clear. As the context will make clear here, spirits is not a reference to demons or ghosts or anything like that, but it is the animating force that that drives, that justifies the things we do, the, the foundation that motivates it all, okay? And unsurprisingly, given John's dualism, kind of categorically, there's only two spirits. They might result in a couple different things, but there's only two spirits. There is 
the Spirit of God, which can be identified clearly by a few things. He's going to give us one test for that here in the passage. And then there is the spirit of the world, or as he says more alarmingly, the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist. Spirit of Antichrist could take many different forms, but they all have one thing in common, and that is that they were going to deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. What John has in mind here is that there are people who have gone out, remember, 1 John 2.19, these secessionists, those have gone out, who claim certain things about God and how to live before Him, but he's saying you need to test their claims because they are not all being advanced on the same foundation and by the same reasons and from the same motivations, all right? Not all the sausage is getting made in the same quality factory. That's the bottom line. That's what he's saying. So you've got to test. You've got to test. He's saying that you can tell the spirit, the driving impulse of what's going on, what's behind something by its product, regardless of what the person claims for themselves. The product exposes What's behind it? So let me give you an actually my illustration here is provided by Scripture itself, and that's the illustration of Solomon with the two prostitutes. If you recall from the Old Testament, uh, both of them have these children, and one uh, essentially they are co-sleeping, and one rolls over and kills her child, unfortunately, in the middle of the night. And so what she does is she gets up and she switches her dead baby for the other woman's alive baby. And then when they wake up, this woman's like, oh no, what happened? Like, wait, but that's my child. You came and switched. She's like, no, this is my child. I assure you. So what do they do? They go appeal to Solomon and all of his wisdom. And so they kind of go back and forth for a while. And then Solomon says, many of you remember, you know what? Let's just get a sword, cut this thing in half. And both of y'all can have half a baby. And the one woman said, yeah, go ahead and do that. We'll both have half. And the other one said, no, 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 please don't, please don't kill him. And Solomon said, gotcha. That's, that's the real mom right there. You see, what he did was he got to the, the spirit of it there. He discerned the spirit behind it. You see how he kind of got behind the claims, what was driving it, what was motivating it ultimately? was not the truth, and it wasn't love either. It was something else behind it that was causing that woman to falsely claim that this child was hers. And so in John's case, these, they have people who have gone out from them, and this is what creates the whole tension here. They are claiming to believe what they believe and act how they act, because they have the Spirit of God who testifies to Jesus that John just talked about. Look at, remember, back up, John 3, 24, prior verse. Whoever keeps His commandments abide in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. And so we've got to have deep kind of sympathy for these folks, John's audience. They're talking with folks. They're mingling with folks. Hearing from folks, in one sense, who have gone out, they are identifying as Christians, and they are interpreting Christ and what they've received by what they claim is the Spirit of God in them. 
that gives true knowledge of Christ and testifies that He is the Christ. Man, that's what they're appealing to. Not some bizarre heretical teaching over here. They're using the same tools that John's audience is using and saying, we're coming to a different conclusion. We have a further experience with this Spirit. John, so what John's saying here is, you know, to his audience, you do have the Spirit. And he does testify to the truth of Christ. But other people will claim the same thing to justify their claims. And so appealing to the fact that you have the Spirit and therefore that you're right is not going to be enough because they are going to say the exact same thing. Except their conclusion is going to be totally different. And by the way, otherwise, you know what John would just tell his audience? He would say this, hey, identify the people who have the Spirit of God, and then you can know what they say about these things is going to be true, and other people's is going to be false. That would be easy. You know someone is, is animated in one sense by the Spirit of God. That's, le- that, that, that's leading to their actions and their words. You know that they're not going to end up in heresy. But instead, the opposite is the case. These people are claiming this. We have intimate fellowship with the Spirit. We've grown. Intimate fellowship with the Spirit that testifies to us about Jesus. And if you had the same foundational insights and relationship with the Spirit that we did, you would come to see that we were actually correct. We're correct. The Spirit has told us so. That testifies to the truth of Jesus. And he's told us these things about Jesus, that Jesus is, and we're going to get to it. That's the situation. That's the whole tension. And so John provides a test. He provides a test to know whose claims are motivated by, on the foundation of the Spirit of truth, motivated ultimately then by the Holy Spirit and Christ in us, and who are false. He says this, by this you know, so here's this phrase again, right? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay? So everyone who confirms that Jesus Christ, two things, first, has come, he has come, it's a past tense with enduring present effects in light of the salvific mention. He didn't, he didn't come and disappear. The idea that He has come means that He has come as the fulfillment of things. Okay? And He has come to accomplish salvation. But number two, that He has come in the flesh. In the flesh. Okay? Not ghost stuff. Not pseudo-flesh. Nor was He a man that was adopted by God. Another heresy that got weeded out in the early church, adoptionism, but that he was in fact God who became incarnate, who took on flesh and and became truly a man while at the same time remaining truly God. That's the idea. Everyone who confirms that Jesus Christ has come and he has come in the flesh, that person right there is from God. They are motivated by the Spirit. The kind of Spirit that confesses, this kind of Spirit within someone that confesses such a thing is from God, is uh, is of God. That's how you can tell, he says. On the other hand, verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not 
from God. Not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Every spirit that every spirit that does not confess Jesus here does not mean not confess that he existed or not confess that he was a good teacher or whatever. It means not confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh, as John has just said. So he shorthands it in the second part. Such a confession has a spirit as its source, to be sure, as all confessions do. But it's not the spirit of God. He says it's the spirit of the Antichrist. And as we saw in chapter 2, John understands, I'm sorry, John's audience understands that there is a, an Antichrist coming, a final climactic opposer of God. We read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as well, the man of lawlessness who sets himself up even to be God. John says, you know that Antichrist is coming, but I tell you that he's already come, and he returns to that theme Right here in chapter 4, there is an already component to Antichrists, little shadows of what the fuller Antichrist will be, and they, like the full Antichrist, are denying God. They are denying God, setting themselves up over what God has revealed. And so, and, and they're saying things that are, of course, incompatible with truly being of God in the first place. And so having given the test, he then affirms and addresses his audience in light of the test that he just gave them. That's what he says in verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, them here... You have overcome them. Who is them? Them is the people who are not confessing, or I should put it, who are denying that Jesus has come in the flesh and that he is the Messiah. But you might wonder how they have overcome them exactly. I mean, if they had overcome them in the sense that they had squashed them out, then, then John wouldn't even be writing any of this, right? You've overcome them. That's why I'm writing you a letter to not be afraid of them and not be deceived by them and not be this by them. Seems odd. So in what sense has John's audience overcome them? And what it seems like what he's doing is saying that they have overcome because they have not gone out and believed falsehood and practiced falsehood, and that their enemies have retreated in this battle. That is to say, they have gone out. There is a battle for truth, disagreement, and guess what? The folks who were right stayed, and the other folks went out successfully standing your ground on the truth of God's Word in the face of attacks and claims that your faith is misguided is winning. Successfully standing your ground on the truth of God's Word in the face of attacks and claims that your faith is misguided is winning. 
When you are under assault and stand your ground, you have won. You have overcome that person. They were unsuccessful. It is to have overcome those trying to overcome you. And that is what John tells his audience. And John says that the reason for this is not, and this is so critical, it is not because of certain personality traits. It is not because of mere circumstances. It is not because of intelligence. It is not because of superior intellectual ability. Instead, he says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The one who is in us is the reason we have not been led down this path over here. As much as, some, we, as, much as you might like to think, John's telling his audience that this is why you... Because you read more books, or you are just a better X, Y, or Z. The, and, and, and maybe those things happen. But the ultimate reason is because Christ in you is what he is saying. Now, it would be very clean to suggest, and I just kind of gave it away, that the one who is in us here is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit. But the articles are masculine. Spirit is neuter. It doesn't refer to the Spirit. Who does it refer to? It refers to Christ. Now, certainly Christ is in us by the Spirit, so much so that in the New Testament we find phrases like the Spirit of Christ. Nevertheless, in John's theology, it's important that Christ is in us because it explains how we have overcome them. Why? John 16, It is Christ who has overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. It is the Spirit of Christ in us that helps us to overcome. That's what John's saying to his audience. That is what holds you fast. The overcomer overcoming within you and on your behalf. He is our champion. That is why we are victorious. That is why, to steal Paul's phrase, we are more than conquerors. We are united with the one who has overcome the world and therefore have overcome them ourselves. And we'll continue to do so, by the way. We'll continue to do so. Those denying that Jesus has come in the flesh are from the world. Verse 5. Therefore, accordingly, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So, so the imagery of speaking here is just so, so helpful. Many of you know that I used to play a lot of soccer. And uh, I was one, on one particular occasion, I was on the junior Olympic team that played in San Francisco. And uh, there were quite a few Hispanics uh, on the team. And uh, don't get me wrong, I took uh, Spanish 1 and Spanish 2 with Senora Weshi, uh, but that wasn't enough to really communicate with them. Um, and what I quickly realized is that if I found someone who could speak that language, uh, that they actually had an ability to influence them communicate with them successfully. And even as a result of sharing the same language, and everyone 
who's his, if you ever if you speak a different language, you know this. Speak the same language with someone in a in a place where no one else speaks that language. You you sense you sense an instant. There's an instant sense of like camaraderie, an instant sense of togetherness. And so, some of the guys on the team were able to have that. Where, what when I would try to speak, there would be, they, there would there would be almost no communication happening whatsoever. And John, what John is saying here is something very similar. He's saying it doesn't matter. What, well, what what it, what it is implied is very similar. I should say, he's saying it doesn't matter how much you want them to listen. It doesn't matter how slowly you say it. It doesn't matter how loudly you say it. As you, It doesn't matter if you point to things as you say it. What he's saying is, the world speaks a different language. They get it. You're not going to. They're not going to understand your language either. Not at a heart level. Of course, he's not talking about regular, plain speech. John says that everyone speaks a language, and theologically, big surprise, there are only two for John. There are only two. Two tongues. There are those who speak the language of the world and those who speak the language of God based on whether or not someone is from the world or from God. If you hail from the land of God, you speak the language of God. If you hail from the land of the world, you speak the language of the world. That's how that works. And the folks over here totally get what they are saying. Totally get what they are saying effortlessly. And there's a similar relationship that obtains over here concerning the things of God and Christ and those who are speaking of God. But conversation across the line just doesn't happen. This isn't the first time John has brought this up. We're able to speak to one another and we're able to listen as a result because of the spirit that is driving our actions and our words. And, and by the way, I would say something even more stronger than that. We can't fail to understand each other. We can't fail to understand each other when we are proclaiming the truth of Christ to one another and the truths of the gospel. Any more than if I just said, my name is Tyler. No one who speaks English in this room could fail to understand what I just said. Even if you tried, you couldn't make yourself not understand. My name is Tyler. All right, I'm going to try to misunderstand that. You can't do it. It's the language that you speak. It's automatic. And John is making a parallel between the world and those from God, the spirit of Antichrist, and those who are... I'm sorry, did I miss that one up? Who are from the world and have the spirit of Antichrist versus those who are of God. Have the spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's not going to matter. I had, a, I had an unfortunate situation a couple of months ago where I was transferred overseas to speak with someone, a customer service rep um, on the other side of the world who spoke very broken English. Um, and I was, I'll, I'll admit, I was very patient with this person and it, and it went fine. But in past times, 
That has not been the case. And so there's this progression of trying to help someone understand. And usually for me, it's the initial sentence. And then someone doesn't understand. And then I say the exact same words, just more slowly. And they don't understand. And then I say the exact same words more loudly. And then I want to speak. And then it's, and you realize that none of that makes someone understand English better. might be cathartic for you. But it doesn't actually help anything at all. Now, of course, maybe if you speak extremely quickly and someone just needs you to slow down, it'd be different. But they don't understand what you're saying. Saying it differently isn't going to help. Packaging it a little, saying it a little more gently isn't going to help. A little more loudly, a little more this, if they don't understand the language. The tale of two tongues here. And John closes with a summary of the passage, but also goes back to where he started in verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And then he closes, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, in your text, the spirit there is uppercase. That is, of course, the ESV's attempt to help everyone out, and it is unnecessary. Okay? We've already seen what spirit means here. The spirit of truth characterizes those who are of God and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, while the spirit of error characterizes those who are of the world and who have been overcome by the evil one. Okay? Everyone, is, everyone has a spirit behind what they are bringing forth and claiming about God, about the world, about Jesus. That's what he's saying. We need to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The spirit of truth is going to come from the Holy Spirit, which is why they tried to help you out with a capital S. The spirit of error is going to come from the world and is of the Antichrist. Critical to John's ending here is the we. And this is going to take us back to our main point. Who is the we? Well, scholars disagree as they love to do. As they love to do, they have to do something. No, that was a, that was a, that was a dig. I'm sorry, I should have said that. But they uh, certainly do disagree on this particular point. Who is the we? And some scholars believe that the we here addresses only teachers in the church. And therefore, it is only particular people, those in leadership roles, who are to be discerning the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, for reasons that I won't go into, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. I find that almost impossible to believe. And the number one reason is because up until this point, the entire letter, including this entire passage, has been speaking to all of John's audience. So why would we assume, why is there any good reason to assume that now all of a sudden we have narrowed the scope of the audience to a particular teaching office within the Johannine community? There's no good reason to believe that. Everyone is called. Every Christian is called. Everyone indwelt by the Spirit is called to discern the spirit of truth from falsehood. And so... The apostolic testimony concerning Jesus, what they have heard from the beginning, interpreted by the Spirit-indwelt church, is the final authority for determining truth. 
Now, as we discuss practicing the truth here in application, I want to discuss this business of discerning the spirits, which I understand, again, seems odd. Hopefully, I've tried to clarify it. Well, no, I certainly have tried to clarify it. Hopefully, it was actually successful. And what we just discussed the spirit of error for John's audience resulted in professing believers, professing, supposed believers, denying that Jesus is the Christ, that he came in the flesh. And thankfully, and at least on one level, maybe it's whatever, but thankfully, at least on one level, that is not the spirit of error that we see across the professing church today. I mean, no one who would even be considered a Christian at the broadest level, I would say. Our Orthodox friends, our Catholic friends, our, our big, all of it would, would confess that Jesus came in the, in the flesh. I mean, that is as general of a Christian. So I take it that I don't need to spend a whole sermon of application, you know, doing apologetics against the Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witnesses and things like that. I don't, I, don't, I don't take it that anyone is right there on the cusp of wanting to rule their own universe, okay? Mormonism, Just forget that if that didn't make any sense. Instead, um, I want to talk about discerning spirits that are much more likely to show up within the church from people who may very well be Christians, and thus they are held fast by Christ. But just like John said in the last passage, um, or a couple passages ago, that those who walk in the light love one another, just like it's possible for Christians to fail there. And instead of loving one another, they can not love one another, which John describes as hate, and that needs to be repented of. And confession, and, and Christ can cleanse us. But the things the world can do in terms of sinful behavior, Christians can lapse into it. It will not characterize their lives, no, but they can lapse into it. And certainly, because of what we've already seen, the Spirit of God will hold us fast, will hold the believer fast in the things concerning the truths of the gospel. Their salvation, their inheritance is secure. But that doesn't mean that there are not other ways in which people will come forward with things and offer them in Christian wrapping paper with utter sincerity. These, aren't, these folks are not trying to pull one over on you. They do. They genuinely believe what they are saying. Very much like John's crowd, those who went out, Folks, they genuinely believed it. It's so easy to think that they just thought they were selling theological snake oil to these folks. They were genuinely, they almost certainly were 100% confident that they were right. And so, sometimes what we see, even in the church, is very confident ignorance. Wrong theology, wrong practice, not damnably wrong in most cases, but it would be what's called heterodox theology instead of heretical theology. Wrong, but nowhere near damnably wrong. There's two parts to this, two parts to this that I want to discuss. The first is the general call versus the specific gifting. John gives everyone a call, as I just mentioned, to discern the spirit of truth and error. And everyone, everyone, 
who has Christ in them is able to do this to a certain extent. Okay? Because they have overcome them. They've overcome the world. And yet, and this is where sometimes people's feelings get hurt, but it really shouldn't. It really should not hurt anyone's feelings. Not everyone is going to be equally good at discerning the spirits after we move past the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Not everyone is going to be equally good at it. In fact, this is what Paul means, I would suggest, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, where he says that some people have been given by God the ability to distinguish between spirits, lowercase s. The ability to distinguish between spirits, very much like Solomon had that particular ability when adjudicating his dispute with these women. And just like being gifted with faith and knowledge, again, every Christian is going to be able to do this. But it doesn't mean that everyone is going to have the same ability here. It is Paul, even, who says at the end of that section, by the way, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Right? So I want to take the majority of our time to provide practical questions to help everyone discern the Spirit spirits of truth and falsehood, among competing claims to Christian truth. But I do want to point out that with the proper perspective, we would be very well served locally, globally as a church, uh, by humbly seeking out and acknowledging those who God may have particularly gifted in this kind of error, discerning things that sound good and Christian from things that actually are good and Christian. That's what discerning the spirit of truth and error is in this kind of context. And I would say that the church can only be served and enriched by acknowledging that particular inequality. It can only be enriched by saying, who has God gifted in these particular ways? Just as much that the church can only be enriched by saying, hey, who has, the, who has these tremendous gifts of service? Who has these tremendous gifts of faith? Who has this tremendous gift? Who, who has this prayer life that just seems so powerful? So gifts have been appointed to people. My only point here is this is one of them. This is one of them. And so we would be well served to listen carefully and seek to find those who seem to have the ability to surgically diagnose claims that we hear in Christian culture and that even trickle into our own church. But what I want to do is talk about three spirit-identifying questions. What is really driving what someone is saying? Maybe they're claiming that you should do something because you're a Christian, or this is how you should live, or this is what you should believe. And we, like Solomon, want to try to get behind the words. What's the spirit that's driving what is being said here? I want to give us three questions. Three questions to think through when we're listening, when we're evaluating. These might be questions you explicitly ask someone, but I definitely want them to be questions that you ask yourself. When you hear competing claims to what we should be doing as Christians with the poor or justice in society or tragedy happening on the other side of the world. The first is a final authority question. What is the final authority, or who, you might say, is the final authority for the person making this claim? Let me give you a couple of candidates. 
First might be experience, direct experience with God. God told me that. God told me that. That's what it was in John's case. The Spirit had revealed to them a development of Christ that John's audience apparently didn't get in on. We've got to, we have direct revelation from God. If you had direct revelation from God, wouldn't you believe it too? Again, we have to have sympathy with John's audience. That's what they're hearing. Maybe it's your experience just in life. I, I have experienced personally this to be the case, and then that becomes my hermeneutic, my lens for looking at life in general. And therefore, I know that this, and I make a generalization. I extrapolate from my personal experience. And so what happens is my personal experience of things becomes the final arbiter of truth. And one of the challenges in addressing this one is that if you were an eyewitness to a murder, you definitely would think that you had a better idea of what happened than people who weren't there. Okay? And so if someone believes that they were an eyewitness to the Holy Spirit revealing themselves something to them, or telling them this, or giving them this conviction, or their personal experience, they were an eyewitness to this thing, um, it's going to be very difficult to persuade them otherwise. But also notice, it is nevertheless their experience that is driving things here. Their experience is the final arbiter. What you say comes below what they've experienced. I was there. I experienced it. Therefore, what I'm saying is authoritative in a way that you can't quite match. You can bring me a Bible verse, but I can now tell you what that Bible verse means because I have a better perspective than you. See how that works? My experience becomes my hermeneutic. Okay, what about intuition? This is just gut feelings. This is especially prevalent in theological ethics, or, uh, and well, not so much theological ethics, but contemporary ethics and culture. What seems to fit or to be right that creeps into the church. We've seen it over the last couple of years with all sorts of social issues. Um, the problem is that while intuitions and conscience play a strong role in Christian ethics, and intuition plays at least some role in theology, um, but, but, but the problem is when what seems right to me becomes the final arbiter of truth, we've become God. We've become God. It just doesn't feel right. When I hear someone say that, uh, it just cuts wrong. Folks, when you read the Bible, there's a lot of things that cut wrong. There's a lot of things that cut wrong. My understanding is that in one of our Sunday school kids' Sunday school classes this morning, they kicked over, they reenacted Jesus kicking over the tables and whipping, uh, you know, snapping the whip. Folks, I guarantee you that felt wrong to a lot of people who were there in the first century. And sometimes when we read it, it feels wrong to us. It doesn't sit well with me. It just seems like it's, huh, it seems like maybe Jesus lost control. I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't there a better way to do this? Isn't there a more gentle way to lay out the truth, Jesus? If our intuitions and our gut feelings, if it's got to square with my deep-seated intuitions, my intuitions are in the driver's seat. That's not the Spirit of God. That's not the Spirit of God in the driver's seat. At the end of the day, peel the onion, and what do you find? You find my gut intuitions. What about reason? This is similar to intuition, but it's just more developed. To quote Spinoza, some of you are familiar with Spinoza, he famously said this, what altar of refuge 
can a man find for himself when he commits treason against the majesty of reason? It's a beautiful quote, but it shows you what was in the driver's seat for Spinoza as a philosopher. Reason. My ability to put things together, to make things rationally compelling to anyone who is objective. But the problem is, if we're speaking a different language, then you and I, brothers and sisters, we're playing by a different set of rules. We're not playing by the same set of rules. And that doesn't mean that we can't appeal to argument. There's plenty of evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. There are good philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Not saying that we can't uh, use those things. I'm saying when reason is the driving spirit of what someone is saying, they are not speaking of God. When that is what is the ultimate driving factor, not a tool that's being used by someone trying to bring God's truth, but is the driving factor itself is the foundation, reason. And then you have, of course, biblical hermeneutics, which is why I've already said this, the clarity of Scripture is the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture and the belief that Christians can understand the Bible because they are spirit and dwelt and reading it together in Christian community is so important. If you give up the idea, in fact, let me give you, I'll give you an illustration. Just, just I want you to feel how sad this is. I had a neighbor, my last next door neighbor was Catholic. We were having a discussion about the Bible. He said that he had just started a Bible study in his home. I was like, all right, man, this is awesome. This is great. And then he said, but we're kind of, we're kind of like rebels, like renegade. This is, you know, people are kind of wondering what we're doing. And I said, why? He said, well, because the priest said that we, we can't understand the Bible. We can't understand it. And so they're nervous about us getting together trying to understand it. That's what happens when you lose the clarity of Scripture. That's why you have to, that's why biblical hermeneutics matters. And it's why we have to hold to the idea that we, you and I, not individually under a tree, but collectively using ordinary means, the, the burden of the Protestant Reformation can discern the truth revealed to the saints without appealing to a vicar of Christ on earth in the form of the Pope or some kind of infallible tradition. So what, the final authority question, what's really driving it? Is someone mastered by, the, by God having revealed Himself in the Word and their understanding, their collective understanding of, I want to submit everything to Christ. That is my driving goal. The second is a practical goal question. A few things to watch for, to discern between the spirits of truth and error here. The first is, and then let me just say right now, the foundational goal for someone who is being moved by and mastered by the Spirit of God is truth seeking to love. We've seen that in 1 John. Truth seeking to love. But guess what? There are a lot of other spirits out there. What about the spirit of helpfulness? Doesn't that sound really good? I was reading some research just this week on some, con some contentious but extremely well-established well now findings in the social sciences. And one of the number one criticisms, because it had now become so established, wasn't that the findings weren't true. You know what it was? These just aren't helpful. 
These aren't helpful things to be saying. Is that what's driving somebody? I'm all for wanting to help people. But, but guess what? When the driving and animating spirit behind what someone is doing or claiming and, and telling you to do is help, is just being helpful, that's just dressed up pragmatism. Might even be a benevolent form of pragmatism. And I hope everyone in here wants to help people and to be helpful. If you're, if you're hearing me say don't be helpful, you're not listening very well. I'm saying that a desire to be helpful in and of itself as the driving goal, regardless of the truth, is not from God. That's not from God. What about to correct perceived wrongs? Of course, we see this in activist scholarship. I am pursuing truth, but I have a very strong agenda in doing so, and that is to create movements and to cause change. Well, but what if this inconvenient truth for the cause gets in the way of what you're saying? Well, it gets reinterpreted. Now there's a revisionist version of things, and off we go to the races of being compelled by something that is not ultimately about getting at the truth, but accomplishing a social goal. And I'm trying to keep, by the way, all of these things very, very high level. I'm not naming names, I'm not naming movements, and I'm not naming isms. But you can think about what they are. Because they have a slow creep into the church Maybe someone says something that the spirit with which they say it is to signal their virtue. They want to, be, they want to make it clear to everyone that they are not one of those kinds of people. Okay? This is why they're coming out and saying this thing. They want to clarify for everyone. Hey, just want to be sure. Look at me. I'm not one of them. All right. I ducked any potential accusations. That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm saying this. And that's why I'm saying you should do it too because I'm concerned about how I look. Maybe it's to avoid repercussions. Maybe it's I'm saying this because I want to wield power over a particular group of people. And instead, when you peel the onion with someone who is mastered by the Spirit of God, what you're going to find is someone is genuinely trying to wisely present the truth and love, and then embrace whatever those implications happen to be. This is the spirit of truth and is from God. Final question is just a question of fruitfulness. Is what someone's claiming, does it unite or divide the church? Does it unite or divide the church. Now, I'm not necessarily, sometimes the church has to be divided. We're celebrating the Reformation coming up. I get it. Sometimes where the church is wrong, got to go separate ways. All there. But is someone's motivating desire to stir up division? Or is it to unite by bringing out the proper truth? If someone's goal is to division, is to see division, that person is warped and self-condemned. That's what Paul says about that man. 
who sows division. Is is what behind is what is what behind wow. Is what's behind what someone is saying a spirit of division? Or is it a spirit that while it might happen to divide because Jesus' message divided families, are they trying to bring truth in a way that unites people around the gospel? Are they trying to bring truth because they just love the next battle against the next ism and they're more defined by what they're against than what they're actually for? And then finally... Is what's being said someone's angry, cathartic little rant against the church or individuals in it to exact some form of personal retributive justice? Or is what's being said, is what's behind these words an aim of building up and edifying the body of Christ for the health of the church? Only one of those driving, animating spirits is from God. There's quite a bit in application. My hope is that in listening carefully to claims on your life, on my life, on what we should be doing, on how of the million reasons you're failing because you aren't doing X, Y, and Z, that you can listen through the lens of some of these questions as you discern the spirit of truth and error so that our church would be protected, built up, and edified as a result. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would continue to hold us fast. We rejoice in the fact that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world that we have overcome because Christ has overcome. Lord, we pray as we are assaulted daily on social media, news, and all the rest about this claim and that claim and this nation and that nation and who should support who and what we should be doing and how we're failing and all of it, all of it backed by the supposed authority of Scripture, that you would give us ears to listen well, to listen carefully, to discern the difference between what sounds Christian and what is. Please give us grace. Give us the wisdom of Solomon, we